This morning in 1 Corinthians 7, we have some challenging subjects that we need to deal with together as a church. Um, And so I'm going to start off in in maybe a little different way than I typically do. Um, I I want to read three stories to you, three situations of life that we'll be dealing with practically. Three situations that aren't related to any particular person. I'm not trying to make them sound like they are someone in particular, but they're real feelings that have been expressed to me by individuals in our body or friends or family members in the past that address hard subjects. The responses and the feelings aren't necessarily ideal, and I'm not saying this is the way we ought to feel, but more often than not, this is the way we do feel. Story number one. He couldn't wait for her to arrive home from her business trip. She had been gone all week, which was tough since today was their first anniversary. But now she was driving home from the airport and everything was ready. He had thought it all through card, flowers, candlelit meal, and romantic music to set the mood in the hope that it wouldn't end there. But the moment she walked through the door, everything changed. The trip hadn't gone well. She was exhausted, had a headache, and to top it all off, they had lost her luggage at the airport. As a result, she had forgotten their anniversary, and romance was the last thing on her mind. He tried to hide his disappointment and salvage the evening, but it seemed everything was set against him. His hurt and frustration soon led to a sharp word And before he knew it, he was in the basement, and she was crying in the bedroom. And he couldn't help but find himself asking, Why, God, did you make this so hard? Isn't sexual intimacy in marriage supposed to be a good gift from you? Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I need a change. Story number two. He was now 35. And the birthday party his friends had thrown him had been fun, but had also been a reminder that he was, again, there alone. It wasn't that he minded being single, per se, but seeing all his friends with their spouses was always frustrating, and he always figured he'd be married with kids by now. And to top it all off, tomorrow his grandmother would be in town and joining him for church. He loved seeing her, but inevitably she was going to ask him if he was dating anyone, and it would probably be in the foyer after service and loud enough that everyone in the whole church could hear. Maybe this time he would just tell her yes so that everyone would quit asking. After all, the effort he had taken to feel comfortable in this church, the last thing he needed was to be set up on another blind date. And as he went to bed that night, he found himself praying, why is this so hard? God, if you've given me the desire to be married, how can my singleness be a good thing? I wish things were different. Or thirdly, she sat on her bed staring at his car pulling out of the driveway. The oppressive silence of her empty house was matched only by resounding sound of the last word he had said to her before storming out. Thirty years of marriage reduced to two words, I'm done. Her feelings were mixed. On the one hand, she felt relief. The last two years had been so hard and she was tired of fighting. But on the other hand, she loved him. And even more than that, she knew what the Bible said about marriage and divorce. But what did that mean for her? In that moment, she found herself crying out, God help. Why is this so hard? What am I supposed to do? Maybe it would be better to just call it quits. I don't know which of those three stories you might find yourself resounding with this morning. I don't know what you find yourself in this morning. But the question that all of those stories beg us to ask is, does the gospel have anything to say about the practical situation of life? Does the gospel have anything to say about our marriage, our singleness, and the struggles that go around both of those subjects? I think the resounding answer to that question 
is yes. In our text this morning, Paul touches on three difficult but relevant situations in life. The topic of sexual intimacy and marriage, the topic of singleness and celibacy, and the topic of separation in marriage. It's an interesting topic to be preaching on my wife's birthday. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has been given his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, the children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Lord, our past experiences and hurt are unavoidable in a topic like this. Feelings and struggles and pains, this text touches on so many of them. I pray that as we walk through it together, you would give us clarity, that you would speak powerfully through me, that you would help us to see how this text relates to our lives today. Lord, it's easy to go off track on a text like this, but we know your word is good. It's given for our good, and it's given because you love us. Help us to see the truth of the gospel and your love for us in this text. In Christ's name, amen. Now, those of you that were with us when we began 1 Corinthians know that Paul began out, he began his letter by expressing his love and affection for this struggling, broken church in Corinth. He addressed first their divisions over leadership, and now he's moved on to the heart of his second major grievance with this church, their disagreements over morality not the least of which being the issue of marriage and singleness. Having broached the subject of sexual immorality last week, he now moves into answering their first actual question. Is marriage and physical intimacy bad? In this day and age, in the Greek culture, there was this understanding that those things that were physical were somehow evil, and it was only spiritual things that could be good. The church had begun buying into this, and they had adopted a form of asceticism, is what it's called. This idea that everything physical is bad, so therefore we should leave our marriages, we should abandon sexual um, 
sexual uh, intimacy in marriage, and we should just walk away from it all. And in that way, it's a little different, and it's a little the same as what we face today. It's different in that, for the most part, we don't struggle with the urge to go off and join a monastery and become a monk somewhere and abandon the world, though there are some that do actually believe that. More so, our temptation is to think that by changing our circumstances, we will find true happiness. If I can just get out of the situation in which I'm in today, then I will be happy. Instead, Paul offers a bit of a counter-argument to that. Paul reveals how we honor God in the situation in which he has placed us. First, he says, we honor God through our selfless intimacy, verses 1 through 5. We'll address that, what that means for marriage. Second, we honor God through our devoted singleness, verses 6 through 9. And lastly, we honor God through our redeeming presence, verses 10 through 16. First, we honor God through our selfless intimacy. Excuse me. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul finally comes to the point of addressing their first actual question. Remember, this whole letter was written in response to a letter that the Corinthian church had written Paul, asking him a series of questions. But Paul instead takes the first six chapters and he addresses the heart of their issue, their pride and their arrogance and their selfishness. Because he says, all of the questions you're asking me about are related to this root problem. And that's no less the case with this first issue he addresses of intimacy. First, Paul seems to be quoting what they wrote in his letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's likely what this church had written to him, asking him about. And he gives some allowance to it. He's going to talk about maybe there's a place for that later on. But we run into something like that. Our culture screams at us, what in the world is that talking about? Does it not? Our identity is the expression of our desires. To limit our own expression in sexuality is an act of self-harm. Or to encourage another to limit that is tantamount to abuse. Or so our culture says. But is that the biblical ethic on sexuality? Is that what the Bible teaches? As Gordon said last week, biblical sexuality is following the Spirit's leading to silence our sinful desires and instead glorifying God in the bodies that he's given us and using them the way he called us to use them. I love Gordon's analogy of a car. Our bodies are like a car, used appropriately, used properly, they function very well. Used for the wrong reasons, they function very poorly. And so in light of that reality, Paul issues both a positive command and a negative prohibition to this church. Look at verse 2. First, the positive command. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He says, because of the temptation towards sexual immorality, this word sexual immorality, we've run into it before. It's the word porneia, the idea of everything outside of the bounds of sexual intimacy in a loving marriage that's about God's glory. He says to prevent that, to help prevent your temptation in this area, he encourages each man to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. And he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. His exhortation here is toward mutual care. Mutual care and mutual concern. 
Now, I'm not going to go into detail of the subject of conjugal rights. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, talk to your parents. Okay? What he's saying here is each one should be concerned for the other's need. Each one should be concerned for their situation. And the principle he applies to it, which runs against our culture, verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And we struggle. We're like, how does that work? You have authority over each other's bodies? What is the authority he's talking about here? The word literally means having rights over or having exclusive claim to. What he's saying is when two married people or two engaged people stand before the church and say, and they take a vow, you know, to be exclusively for you and to be exclusively for you, to not engage in any sort of sexual activity with anyone other than the person that they're getting married to, they are releasing a certain degree of authority of exclusivity to themselves, to that person. And lest we get off track here too quickly, imagine just how radical Paul's statement here would have been in the first century. We read the first part, wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and we go, what in the world is he talking about? The statement, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, would have been explosive in this culture. The fact that as husbands, your body was in some way owned by your wife would have set off all kinds of red flags to this culture. What he's saying here is you exercise an authority, a responsibility for the other person in the sexual intimacy of your marriage. Be careful how you wield that. Be careful what you do with that. Use your authority and your responsibility for the good of the other person, not to fulfill your own sexual, personal desires. He flips the coin to the negative prohibition and explains more what he's talking about in verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. Again, I don't need to go into detail on what we're talking about here, but what he's saying is this aspect of your marriage, this aspect of your relationship is not a tactic to manipulate and control the other person. It is not a tool and it is not a weapon to be wielded to get your own way. He says, don't deprive one another. Except, he offers an exception here, he says, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. He allows for this exception that's similar to fasting, the idea of not eating food for a period of time in order to devote ourselves to prayer and the study of God's word. He says, that may be an appropriate thing to do in your marriage for both of you to agree to say, we're going to take some time to not be distracted by this so that we can devote ourselves to prayer. But note three things he says there. First of all, it is a mutual agreement. Both parties are on the same page about it. Number two, it is a limited time. And number three, it's about prayer. Again, not about getting our own way. He says there's a place for that sort of thing. But as a general rule, the prohibition would be to not deprive one another. And again, he comes back to the basic principle so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says... 
I'm trying to help you understand that you care for each other in this way. Here's the point. Sexuality in marriage is to be expressed selflessly for the other's good. It's not to be expressed selfishly. It's not to be expressed abusively. And it's not to be expressed manipulatively. Sexuality in marriage is to be expressed selflessly for each other's good. And in that way, I think it's similar to maybe a teeter-totter rather than tennis. We have a tendency to approach sexual intimacy in our marriages kind of like a tennis match, where the objective is to get our way and to win, and we volley back and forth until we score a point. Instead, Paul says it's more like a teeter-totter. You're both on, you guys are familiar with that old, right? Like, I know they've gotten rid of those on playgrounds now, but, right? Bar, two people, you understand why they've gotten rid of it. There's a lot of accidents and there's a lot of injuries that go with it, but you're both on the teeter-totter, and there's a, there's a dependence upon each other in this, right? And if you don't push up with your legs to continue the process going of back and forth, the other person just sits there stuck up high, right? If you decide to abandon the teeter-totter altogether, they come crashing down, as most of my brothers would do to me on a regular occurrence. His point is that sexual intimacy in marriage is this codependent exercise. It's not a matter of trying to win and trying to beat the other person. You each need each other. You each have to care for each other. You each have to exercise your authority with a selfless attitude. It's not about winning. It's not about getting your way. It's about service to another person. So what does this mean for us personally? Hear me on this. Intimacy isn't about performance. Contrary to what popular movies and TV shows would tell you, we must not offer intimacy as payment or withhold it as punishment. That is not the way God lays this out. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there aren't situations where we don't, where we have to separate for a period. We're going to address that later, okay? I'm not talking about abusive situations. I'm not talking about manipulative situations. I'm not talking about other things that we could talk about. As a normal activity in marriage, intimacy is not to be offered as payment or withheld as punishment. So the question you find yourself asking me is, okay then, Brad, practically, who gets to decide? The answer is yes. You both get to sacrifice what you want for their good. Later on in the book, Paul is going to talk about giving up his own rights for the sake of the church. He's going to encourage the church to give up their rights and what they want for the sake of each other. He makes the exact same argument here about marriage. You both get to sacrifice what you want for the other person's good. You both get to act on the authority God has given you over their bodies for their good, not to please yourself. And lastly, there's something else we have to recognize. We have to recognize and care for the spiritual weaknesses and temptations in our spouses. Paul here is not advocating an endorsement of the sexual immorality that a spouse may engage in. That's not what he's saying. 
but he is saying, as the spouse in this situation, you have an obligation to care for where they're at in that struggle. There is a responsibility to care for their weaknesses and their temptations. Do you know your spouse well enough to know where they struggle? It's easy sometimes to simply wish things were different in our marriages. Think back to that first story of that man and his frustration with the situation. What was wrong about his paradigm was he failed to see how his responsibility in that moment was to care for the needs of his wife. And we struggle because we want what we want when we want it. And it gets so frustrating at times because it feels like things aren't changing but Christ needs to be invited into the moment and into the situation that we find ourselves in. If you're struggling with this topic in your marriage, have you invited Christ into this? Have you looked at how the gospel impacts your thoughts and your feelings and the way you approach it? But what about those that aren't married? What about those that have never been married Paul moves on to another uncomfortable topic, our devoted singleness, verses 6 through 9. He starts off and says, now as a concession, not as a command, saying I'm not commanding this, but I'm allowing this. And he talks about the value of singleness. He goes on and he says, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. What does Paul mean? What was Paul? Single. Paul wasn't married. So why does he wish that everyone would remain as he is, single or not in marriage? Now for that, we have to cheat a little bit. We have to move ahead to a text that comes up in just a few verses. Flip to the right to later in chapter 7 and look at verse 28. We'll deal with this in more complete ways later in a couple of weeks. But he says there's at least two problems that come with being married. Okay? There's two problems that come with being married. Look at verse 28. He says this, But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Those that marry will have worldly troubles. Now, I've already dashed your hopes and told you that 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a marriage passage. It's not to be read at weddings. That one would be. I can just envision myself standing before the, the engaged couple, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses. Those who marry will have trouble. (laughs) And yet, those of you that are married know exactly what I'm talking about. One person has, as a sinner, has their own problems. Two people, when you invite them in, you now have two sinners to multiply problems together. And more often than not, those two sinners produce more sinners, and then you have a whole lot of problems. He says there are worldly troubles that come from being married. That's a reality. That's a part of the situation. Then in verse 32 through 34, he says there's also a degree of anxiety that comes with being married. Look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And rightly so. Your interests are divided. There is a degree of anxiety that comes with, how do I both please God and try and please my spouse? If there's no desire for that, you've got a problem. 
But there's an anxiety and there's a problem, there's a frustration that comes with that. Though good, marriage also means problems. Don't be surprised by it. Scripture isn't oblivious to it. Your marriage will come with challenges. But he holds up this benefit of singleness. Look at verse 35. I love the way he puts this. Again, we'll deal with this more later, but at least we need to note this now. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. It says the married man, the married woman, is distracted by their spouse. The unmarried person, the person like Paul, has a unique opportunity for an undivided devotion to the Lord. Singleness provides a unique opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. It's an incredible benefit that you must recognize, particularly if you're single. This is a reality. Now flip back to verse 7, and he talks about this gift of singleness. He says, but, excuse me, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He says there's a unique reality of singleness Okay, some are given this unique ability, some aren't. And it's a divine gift, right? Note that it's a gift from God. This singleness is a gift from God. Literally, the term there is charisma. Later, he's going to talk about that as a gift of grace. That's what it means. It is a grace in your life that God has given you this opportunity for singleness. But there are special challenges that come with it. It involves a special inclination and ability to refrain from marriage. Look, he says, he goes on, and he says, right, like, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What he's saying is singleness is this unique gift from God to be used for the good of others. It's a unique season. It's a unique situation in life, but it comes with a unique burden, right? It comes with this unique burden to exercise self-control. And I don't think what he means is that single people don't have any desire for sexual fulfillment. I don't think that's what he means. But they have a unique ability to control it. He's not advocating that we just go crazy. Remember, Paul is also the one that wrote the book of Galatians with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Something we should all aspire to. But he's saying, in some ways, that those who are able to be single have a better ability to do that than the rest of us. It says, and if they don't, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's better to get married than to live out a life that would be the type of sexual immorality he's talking about here. So singleness is a unique gift from God for ministry and devotion to Christ. We have to recognize that. That's hard to remember at times. It comes with unique challenges but it also comes with incredible blessings and opportunities. In that way, it's similar maybe to driving on the Autobahn in Germany rather than driving with your normal speed limits. I hear that anymore there's speed limits on the Autobahn anyway, but you understand the Autobahn historically was a road in Germany and a couple of other countries next door where you could drive as fast as you wanted to drive. But it had some special regulations and it had unique challenges as well. For most of us, we're driving along at 65 because to drive faster than 65, we would get ourselves into trouble, right? But if you can handle it, you can drive on the Autobahn. You can drive as fast as you want. 
but you have to be very careful because that extra speed can get you into trouble too. And it's kind of like that. You have an undivided attention. You have an undivided devotion to the Lord to pursue the things of the Lord. But there's some challenges that come with it, and you need to be mindful of those challenges. As individuals, this means embracing singleness as a gift. And I know for some that can be a very hard thing to do, particularly when you don't want to be single. But it's a unique gift. It's an opportunity from God to give your undivided attention to him. What are you going to do with that situation in your life? Are you going to look for God to change it and get out of it as quick as you possibly can? Or are you going to use it for his glory? At the same time, you need to recognize if it's not something you can handle. Paul is not giving an excuse here for sexual immorality. He's not saying if you don't have this divine gift of, of singleness, you therefore get to act however you want. God has given you the grace for the season in which he has put you. For us as a church, there's a couple of things that I just feel the need to say. First, singles in the church should never be viewed as second-class citizens. There is a tendency to go that direction, to think that because someone is married, they're somehow more mature than others. That is not what Scripture teaches. Christ and Paul, both single. It's not a benefit to us as the church in America when we recognize that about half the adult population in this country is single, and only about a third of our churches tend to be single. That is not an endorsement of what we're doing. We need to recognize that singleness is not a second-class reality in the church. We also need to be sensitive to each other's situations. There's a whole lot of reasons that somebody may be single. They may have never married, they may be divorced, they may be widowed, they may suffer from same-sex attraction. All of those are present in our church. Do we take the time to understand and to know or not? And on that theme, those of you that are single and are with us here today, please be patient with the rest of us. When we say something stupid and ask about the kids or ask about the spouse because we don't know your situation, please be patient with us. We're all working on this together. It's easy sometimes to simply wish that things in your life were different. That second story where the man wanted to be married but wasn't. The question is, have you invited Christ into this season of your life? Have you invited Christ into your singleness? Finally, one last uncomfortable conversation with Paul. Paul says, we honor God through our redeeming presence. Look at verses 10 through 16. He addresses a new audience. He switches back to those that are married. He says, to the married, I give this charge. To those that are married, I give this charge, this command. Note, this is not a suggestion. He says this, I, or but not I, but the Lord. We need to recognize this caveat real quickly. There's some that use a section like this in Scripture to say that all of Scripture isn't inspired or to cast doubt on Paul's letter. What I think he's saying here is this is a direct reality that Christ taught on. What he's going to address later is something that Christ didn't directly teach on, though all of the book of 1 Corinthians is equally as inspired. This isn't a, oh, well, Jesus said it, we need to pay attention. Jesus didn't say it later, so we don't need to pay attention. The red letters in your Bible are not the only words that are inspired. But he says, I have a direct understanding of what Jesus taught on this. And he lays out two possible situations. 
the unbelieving spouse and the believing spouse. What are you to do? First, staying with a believing spouse. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. In this part of Scripture, Paul issues what is an unqualified prohibition on believers divorcing each other. He says, wives do not separate, husbands do not divorce your wives. He offers this concession, remain single or be reconciled. But we need to recognize the weight of what he's saying here. particularly in our cultural moment where we find ourselves. And he uses different terms, wives do not separate, husbands do not divorce, probably because at the time, wives didn't have the legal ability to divorce their husbands. But the exhortation is the same regardless. Now, we know that there are exceptions allowed in Scripture. There's Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 that talk about if a spouse engages in sexual immorality, you can let them go. We also know that he's going to talk about physical abandonment here in just a moment, addressing the unbelieving spouse. But we have to allow what he's saying to speak for itself here. He's saying, God laid out one woman and one man for a lifetime as the ideal. And we need to recognize and respect that, if at all possible. There are possibly other exceptions to this as well. Situations of abuse, situations of mental instability, other situations that we could talk through. But those situations are both rare and extreme. I would encourage you, if you find yourself in one of those and you're struggling with this question, talk to the elders. We would love to help walk you through this, what Scripture teaches, what Scripture doesn't teach. And don't hear me saying more or less than I'm actually saying. But let me caution you briefly. If as you read Paul's exhortation here to stay married, your mind immediately runs to the exceptions, rather than seeking, if at all possible, to obey the command, check your heart. Check why you want to change the situation that you're in so badly. Again, I can't address everything that goes on related to this topic in marriage. Hopefully, we'll address some of those questions in the podcast this week. But the goal here that Paul gives for a fractured marriage is reconciliation. His goal here is to see that spouse reconciled. He goes on and he addresses the unbelieving spouse in verses 12 through 16. And I want to note real briefly that what he's saying here is he's not talking about choosing to marry an unbeliever. It's very clear in Scripture that we are not to marry unbelievers. He's saying if both of you were married prior to coming to salvation and one of you comes to faith in Christ, now you're in an interesting situation. And what do you do in that situation? Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother is a, or has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his, because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, there's some sticky things there. But his general exhortation to those that are married to an unbeliever is, if at all possible, stay in the marriage. If the unbeliever agrees to stay in the marriage, do everything you can to make it a peaceful, God-honoring marriage. It assures them that they're not defiled by their spouse, something that would have been really confusing in this pagan culture in the first century. He assures them that they are made holy. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What does that mean? He's not talking about morally pure or saved. There is nothing in you that by being married to a Christian or having Christians as parents means you are saved. It's not what Paul is saying here. It's very clear. But what he means is there is a unique aspect of being set apart for God's use. There's a unique blessing that comes from having a believing spouse in a marriage. Kids, I encourage you to consider what this means. You are not saved because of the faith of your parents. There is nothing that they can do to change your heart. And yet, having grown up in a Christian household, it's very easy to take for granted the blessing that you have received. Do not take for granted the blessing it is to be raised in a household that preaches the gospel and the word to you. It is not an oppression on you. It is an incredible blessing from the Lord. Then we get into kind of the harder situation in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to be so. It says, if the unbelieving spouse wants to separate and they want to leave, and you have done everything you can to reconcile and for there to be peace in your marriage, you can let them go. Because God has called you to peace. If the most peace and honoring thing of God you can do is to reconcile in that marriage and stay in it, do. If that's just going to continue to cause conflict and they want you to leave and they want to abandon you because they're like, I can't stand your faith in Christ, it says you have permission to let them go. Though I imagine that's one of the hardest things anyone ever has to do. But in either situation, the goal is reconciliation. The goal is to win that person for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 16. He says, For how do you know, wife, whether you would save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He says the goal in this situation is to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, not to make the situation as comfortable for, for you as possible. I think this is Paul's point here. We respond to difficult marriages with the hope of reconciliation and the hope of salvation. Our goal is to win that other person. Win them back, win them for Christ, to see them living in obedience to God. In either situation, married to a believing spouse, married to an unbelieving spouse, the situation is motivated by the glory of God and the good of the other person, not our instant happiness and comfort. We must remember this. It's about God's glory. It's about the good of the other person. It isn't about making us feel better in the moment. It's not about changing our situation and then we will be happy. Because that's simply not true. The application to a text like this is pretty straightforward. I told you that 1 Corinthians would be infinitely applicable. Pursue peace and pursue restoration in your marriages, if at all possible. 
In church, this means we need to help each other. We're not off the hook just because our marriage is in safe shape right now. When we look at each other, we need to see examples of this sort of restoration and reconciliation. We need to share those stories with each other. Because it's easy to sometimes simply wish that things were different. Think about the third story. Saying, I wish this wasn't where my life was at today. The question in that moment is, have you invited Christ into that difficult marriage? Have you sought to see how the gospel impacts the way you respond to your spouse, regardless of what they choose to do? Which brings us to our key point for this week. Glorifying God in our bodies means honoring him through selflessness in all situations of life. Whether that's related to sexual intimacy in marriage, whether that's related to singleness and celibacy, whether that's related to a separation in your marriage, we glorify God in our bodies by being selfless in every situation of life. And we do this because of and through the power of the gospel, not because of our own strength. This runs totally counter to who we are in our own strength. We live out selfless intimacy in our marriages because of the gospel. Because God didn't wait for us to get our act right before approaching us in love. We live out a devoted singleness because God's glory and the gospel are preeminent. We don't live for ourselves today or tomorrow. We don't live for our immediate happiness. We live for his glory and the good of those around us. And we live out redeeming presence in our hard marriages because of the gospel. Turning ourselves over and entrusting ourselves to Christ, the only one that understands what we're really going through. Regardless of which story looks most like your life, and I can't speak to that, you can live in that situation today in light of the gospel. Because you don't live for happiness today. You live for God's glory. You live for a future hope. You live in light of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to you in this. This is not our natural inclination for any of us. It is not something we do in our own strength and in our own power, but only by the work of the gospel in our hearts through your spirit. Lord, help us to pursue selfless intimacy in our marriages. Help us to enjoy the opportunity of devoted singleness, focusing entirely on you. And help us to look for a redeeming presence, even when our spouse isn't doing what we wish they were doing, even when they're not obeying you and they're not walking with you. Help us to seek to win them for the, for the good of the gospel and for your glory. Help us to do this in a supernatural way that we cannot do in our own strength. In Jesus' name. Amen.